The following podcast is a live recording of a radio show first broadcast by Fresh FM with assistance from New Zealand On Air. Fresh FM is a community access media station based in Te Tauihu, the top of the South Island, New Zealand. If you or your group would like to know more about how you can have a program on our station, please contact us. Visit our website freshfm.net for our contact details. Tenakota, to those of you who weep to massive filter sweeps. Hari mai to the Paradise Delay podcast, an exploration of electronic music and mental health. Join us for the midweek breakdown on Fresh FM. So, I'm out in Gizzi at the moment, and we've got a job out in Toloka Bay. Beautiful spot, massive wharf. And so we arrived at the campground, set up, just doing our thing. And there seems to be a magpie, pesky little magpie, that is following me around. I feel a little bit, um, I don't know. It only seems to be following me around. It will dive out of the trees and just flutter along above my head. And it's weird. It doesn't do it to anyone else. It seems to be just me. And I've tried chasing and chasing off the magpie, pulling the fingers at it, you know, like, leave me alone, bro. I ain't done nothing to you. And, yeah, it still seems to follow me around. And I'm pretty sure, as I'm recording this podcast, it's waiting outside the van, ready to dive for me again. And I'm not sure. I'm not sure why it's picking on just me. But the the thing is, I have just dyed my hair. And not only have I dyed my hair, but I have a bit of a Mohican going on. And... The thing about Mo- Mohican, I thought it would be cool. I'm not sure if it is. People look at me strange, but I've got three racing stripes going down from the back of my neck to the top of my forehead. And these racing stripes are bleached, so I've got bleached blonde hair, three stripes, and on the outside of that is just normal. My mousy colored hair, I guess you'd call it. And I'm wondering if maybe the magpie is attracted to stripes, or maybe stripes are danger. I know in nature, stripes are often a warning that you're dangerous, like wasps and nasty caterpillars, maybe monarch caterpillars. They're striped in yellow and black as well. So maybe it's like this, I don't know, natural reaction of this magpie to dive bomb me sees the stripes and thinks I'm gonna climb up a tree and get its nest or something pesky little magpie so hopefully I don't get dive bombed after the podcast we'll see how we go so before coming down to Gizzy we spent some time traveling around the upper north island of New Zealand or Aotearoa. It's beautiful up there. There's, I don't know, it kind of feels untouched, which seems surprising. I mean, it's only a couple of hours from Auckland. Now, the reason we went traveling is my father is from Northland. He's from a tiny little town with, I think, only 500 people, and it's called Ruawai. Two waters. 
It's about 20 minutes drive south from Dargaville, and it's self-proclaimed, proclaimed, self-proclaimed, Kumara, capital of the world. Just pretty cool. I love Kumara. And, yeah, I think they grow a lot of Kumara there. Now, I went up, I visited a couple of relatives, and they talk about small town hospitality. It's great. So nice. Uh... The community there is super strong. Everybody seems to know what's going on with everyone. and It's just pretty tight-knit. It's nice. It's chill. Now, <laughs> the thing about small towns, the thing about relatives in small towns, is I have this theory, and this theory is that I reckon everyone has a racist auntie, or at least a- uncle, you know, the ones that like to post their ideas on Facebook and think Jacinda Ardern has a plot to turn Aotearoa into a communist state. Those aunties and uncles, pretty sure we all have one of them. And yeah, they make Christmas lunches kind of awkward. Now when I was up there, I heard a few remarks from my relatives and one remark, well, I didn't actually hear that many, but it seemed like the common theme was te reo, the Māori language. And they were talking about something along the lines of, like, I like Māori, te reo, the language, but I don't like the way it's been pushed to us on the news. Now, to be fair, I don't watch that much news, but... I do know that the Māori language te reo is really becoming more commonly spoken on there. And I think that's great. It's so cool. Um, We're so lucky in New Zealand to have an indigenous language. It's really special. It adds colour to our culture and is something unique that we Kiwis share. And I don't know why, well, I do know why, because it was racist, but the comment from my relative stuck in my mind, and I didn't think it was fair to think that the Māori language is being pushed on the country. Kind of seems like a grand leap. And when I did some digging, did a little bit of research on my laptop, I looked back on some Kiwi history and I did. I learned that all the way back in 1867 in New Zealand, more than 150 years ago, there was a law called the Native Schools Act, which was introduced. The New Zealand government created this law that stated that English should be used in schools when practicable. Now, I mean, this doesn't sound so bad. The goal of the act was to assimilate Māori into English society and have them learn English. Which kind of makes sense, but I mean, not a lot of English people are going to be learning Māori, I think there. Some would. The thing is, when I did some research on it, I found that there were many reports of Māori students who used te reo in school. And their report said that they were punished for it. They were caned. They were, yeah, punished for using their own native tongue. And I get it, like, I understand that at the time it was probably quite important for Māori to learn English, but to punish children for using te reo goes another step. And at the time it was common for Māori to be punished for using their native tongue. And I just think it was effectively beating the language out of generations of Māori children. These Māori children would have been taught from a young age that speaking speaking their native tongue is wrong, and in doing so, they will be punished for it. Basically, the effect of this act meant that the language was cut off from being passed down generations. 
it was kind of cut off at its roots. And until the act was finally repealed in 1969, native speakers of Te Reo in New Zealand dwindled to an all-time low. And why do I think this is important? Man, I love community, I love culture, and the thing about language and how we use it is that you can learn a lot about a culture from the way they use language. Language expresses how we see the world. With our words, we tell stories, we sing songs, we capture how we see the world. And when it was taken away from the Māori people, they lost with it their culture, their mana, meaning strength, and their history. Losing your language is losing who you are as people, and you lose the thing that bonds you together. And looking back on history, this was a common technique used by colonialists, where they would ban the language and traditions of indigenous cultures. Without their language, they couldn't communicate, they couldn't share their history, Most importantly, they couldn't cooperate. They were weakened. And colonialists realized that by taking away the language and culture of indigenous tribes, they were less likely to revolt. And unfortunately, it's a case seen all over the world, from the Aborigines in Australia to more recently the Irish in Ireland. And... That's why I'm so glad to see Te Reo being used more and more on the news. I'm happy about it. It's so nice. And when my relatives said that they weren't happy about Te Reo being pushed on them, I don't think they're right, you know? Like, the Māori language is not being pushed on us. The fact is, it has spent 150 years being held back. It's like a dormant volcano, you know, banning the language and punishing children for using it for so long has kept Tereo sleeping. And I feel like it's kind of shifted a little bit. It's coming back and it's awesome. And it's cool to see many Māori are reconnecting with their language, their cultures and their whakapapa. Whakapapa meaning genealogy, their ancestors. And this is important because having a tie to who you are and knowing where you came from is so important to get an idea of where you're going. And unfortunately in New Zealand, like i got to be real for a bit, the Māori population lags far behind in terms of wealth and life expectancy. In Aotearoa, Māori make up almost 50% of the prison population, despite being a far smaller percentage of the population. And this just ain't right. I mean, this isn't the fault of Māori people. It is because they were stripped of their language, their culture, their identity. And you can see similar statistics in other indigenous populations. And yeah, it's it's not their fault, it's they had to assimilate, they had to adapt to English culture, and in doing that they had to surrender their culture. And of course they're not going to fit in. Okay, I'm going to tell you a yarn. So we had this really interesting lesson in high school where we were taught, well, we were proposed a scenario where aliens came down to the earth and they had far superior technology to us. They made us speak their language. They made us go to their schools and we weren't allowed to sing our songs. We weren't allowed to do our traditions. We had to adapt to their society. And I can remember the whole class was just like, 
what the frick? No, that's not fair. That sucks. Like, that's bullshit. And, um, and then the teacher flipped around on us and it was just like, yeah, that's what happened to the moldy people. And I thought it was a great lesson. I learned from that lesson. And I think it was a cool, I don't know, cool lesson. Thank you, Mr. Ludlam. Anyways, if Tereo on the rise, Maori people are finding their voice within our society. They can connect to their past and their culture and band together like a community. I think with the use of Tereo, we are building a more cohesive society. One where Maori have a voice too. And I hope a more fair and equal society where we all have the same opportunities will come from that. That's my hope. So, on a less serious topic, uh, I've written a song, I hope you like it, yet to be named, but yeah, I haven't actually fully written it yet, but it'll be released with the podcast, and I hope it slams. I hope it tickles your ears like a Labrador who is excited and is looking your ass. Yeah. So this is Paradise Lay Podcast. This is my song. like us in the nighttime under the stars. There ain't no better than a marina sweater.
You're back on the Paradise Delay podcast on Fresh FM. Do you have a voice? Do you have something to say? Then you're already a podcaster. Go check out Fresh FM website and get in touch. And start your journey on a podcast. It's easy. I can do it. So go check them out. Go have a chat with Matt. Go have a chat with Max. Say what's up. So that was my song that I wrote, a little beep up. Yeah, I hope you enjoyed it. And we've been talking about, yeah, a little bit of my thoughts on Toreo culture and why it's such a good thing that it's been used in the public sphere. I think it's awesome. So, myths. Throughout cultures, throughout history... Cultures have used myths. Myths are stories that give people a relationship with the universe, the passing of time, and with their environment. While some may dismiss myths as made-up stories, there is a lot to learn about how a culture thinks by learning about them. Myths are like the truth without the facts. While the facts of the story may not be true, the lessons and meaning of the story is still important. Myths help cultures connect with deep shared societal events, memories and values. And thus, we can learn the truth about a culture if we look at their myths. To be honest, when I think about myths, I think about old Greek gods, you know, raining down thunder, sleeping with their cousins, just doing messed up stuff. But there are many myths still present in today's world. And this one's a banger. This one starts off in 1966 in the ports of England. It was a calm morning in March. Seagulls chirp, as men run to and throw, loading a ship. Setting sail on calm water, the ship breezed out of the harbour and into the open sea. The ship was bound for Rio de Janeiro, Brazil. Yet, the same day, the ship would inexplicably vanish. No news would be heard for the ship from two months. Finally, news would arrive from Capo Verde, a small archipelago of islands situated west of the most eastern point of Africa, out in the middle of the ocean. Locals of Cape Verde had been walking the beach and found a towering shipwreck glistening in the heat of the morning sun. Quickly, police were called and boarded a small ship to investigate. Aboard the ship, they were met with silence. No sign of any crew members, injured or otherwise. What the frick, freaking weird. So, they searched the ship, but all they could find were containers holding the ship's cargo. So they left the ship, taking what cargo they could find. Reports would later say that the ship had run into a storm but it was a mystery what happened to the crew. So they stopped the investigation, unloaded the cargo aboard the ship, and set sail for shore, where the cargo was unloaded and opened. And sitting inside, can you believe it, were stacks and stacks of sparkly new synthesizers. Turns out the ship had been bound for the latest synthesizer expo in Rio de Janeiro, packed full with the latest in synth tech from Moog, Moog, sorry, and Korg. Shouldn't say Moog. I'll get laughed at. Man, I know how excited I would be if I, like, opened up a container and just saw it full of the latest synth gear. I would go crazy. Um, I watch enough, like, unboxing videos on YouTube of synthesizers. Yeah, it would be very exciting. 
And yeah, the thing is, what you have to understand at the time, Cape Cape Verde was a relatively small and poor nation. They had been ravaged over the past decades by drought, and the fact is, electricity in the households wasn't really a thing. So they packed up the synthesizers and sent them to an isolated church to store them to be picked up by the shipping company. Kind of sad, but Cape Verde is the prime location between Europe and Africa and the Americas. Ships would often stock in and stock up and then continue on their voyage. And because of this, Capo Verde has a long history of trade. And most of its economy was based on trade. It still is. Saying this, um, some of the history was not so great. Cape Verde was used extensively, extensively during the slave trade during the 1800s. When ships would arrive in Cape Verde full of slaves bound for America. Some slaves were lucky enough to escape. Now the landscape of the scattered Atlantic archipelago veers from one extreme to another. There's lush peaks over a desolate ashy desert. Martian red canyons run into white sand bays. And Often these escaped slaves would run to high mountains where the land protected them. Slaves who escaped forced servitude made these mountains home, creating thriving communities. And the thing about the mountains, it made it tough for the Portuguese, who were the colonialists at the time on Cape Verde, made it difficult for them to recapture them. And what's cool about these communities up in the mountains is the Africans who were brought over to be slave traded, they brought with them their traditions from across the sea in Africa, not America. Just like with the Māori here in New Zealand, their traditions and music were unfortunately banned by the Portuguese. The Portuguese were worried about an uprising in the African community and tried to stifle it by outlawing culture in the forms of music and tradition and language. Anyone found to be carrying out African traditions would be physically punished and thrown in a Portuguese jail. Sounds kind of similar to New Zealand, right? A little bit, maybe less lawless. The thing is, I'm really interested in culture and music as a force that can unite people, can bring people together, you know. That's what I love about it, and that's what I love about electronic music. met so many cool people through that. It's cool. And it can unite people, whether by storytelling, music, or making art. There just seems an inherent power to bring people together and unite them especially in times of struggle. In the African communities in the mountains, cultures were protected by the isolated landscape, and the Portuguese, back down below the mountains, brought across accordions to play traditional Portuguese music, and funnily enough, these were appropriated by the African communities. And when the communities in the mountains somehow got a hold of these accordions, they started making music. They added rhythm sections using something called the farina, which is a strip of iron you scrape with a butter knife. You scrape it up and down, and it makes a percussive sound. And the music became a unique mix of West African and Portuguese. And then you sprinkle in some vocals, and bam, you have the unique sounds of the communities up in the mountains in Capo Verde. Now this sound has a name, 
It's called Funana. And how do you describe it? Well, it's been described as the sound of a raucous, drunken village party. Sounds fun to me. I like that description. It's hedonistic and upbeat, with lyrics that speak to the joyful spirit that commonly accompanies the music. Men and women dance to the music by pushing their hips into each other and moving together in sync with the beat, which obviously offended the Portuguese so much they made it illegal to play. It was also... <laughs> sounds ridiculous. The Funana was also banned, apparently, for being too African, which is ridiculous. But some people say it's because the African communities up in the mountains were actually better at playing the accordion than the Portuguese. So I've got a little, a little sample of Funana music here. It sounds fun. Uh, it's got a lot of chanting, it's got the accordion, it's got a little tinking of the funana in the background. So give it a listen. Does it sound like a raucous party in a village? I hope so. That was Funana, a type of music originating from African communities up in the mountains of Cape Verde. Yeah, it's a good vibe, sounds fun. Definitely would like to go experience that one day. This is a Paradise Delay podcast. You're tuning in with me, Ben. That's me. And we're talking about a myth in Cape Verde about a shipwreck that turned up with a bunch of synthesizers. And I have to mention this man. His name is Amilcar Cabral. And he was a much beloved Cape Verdean. He was a leader of the independence movement. Now, as the myth goes, when Cabral, when the synthesizers arrived and were stored in a church up in the mountains of Cape Verde, Cabral thought to himself, and he was like, yo, we could do something with those. And he recognized that traditions like music were fundamental to culture, and Culture is absolutely intrinsic to giving downtrodden people pride. Cabral pushed to celebrate African traditions that had been forced underground by the Portuguese. And when the simps were brought back to shore and left unboxed in an isolated church, Cabral saw the potential and he was like, yeah, take them to the schools. And he did. And so the instruments, there were quite a few of them apparently, were distributed among local skills and the children of Cape Verde began to nurture a unique talent for playing the synthesizer. And that's cool. It's like these poor little schools and communities in Cape Verde given this like expensive latest tech that I can't afford, I'm a little bit jealous. And when they got these synthesizers, they played them, they got to know them from a young age, and with this, a new sound was born. A sound that carried the traditional sounds of Africa and mixed them in a boiling pot of the latest technology that the West that Europe and America had to offer. And this would explode a decade later 
to a blend of cosmic funk and African dance music scene like no other. At the time, there was nothing out there that sounds even remotely like the sounds coming out of the island. It was a sound of churning Latin rhythms, explosive synth solos that were imbued with the trills and ornaments of the African people's traditional songs. And what does that sound like? Well, this is a song called Pinta Manta by Antonio Sanchez, and it opens with a crescendo of a relentless, simple, synth-driven Funana rhythm. Joined at its peak by a stuttering guitar, a spacey synth melody, and a commanding voice. It's a very germane oral entry to this world of stellar grooves, astral synths, and divine voices. It is the perfect blend of Funana groove and synth sci-fi magic.
You're back on the Paradise Delay podcast. I hope that song, Dance for Your Ears, like a sparrow in the morning with a piece of bread. You're on Fresh FM, and man, that song, like, there's nothing like it. I think it's because most African communities didn't have access to the latest technology and just to hear something from that era with the traditional sounds mixed in with the latest tech it's such a blend it's so cool and it's unique and you know I can't help but think that there must be some truth to the myth of a Symphalian shipwreck The music that poured forth from this era is like nothing else I've heard. There's like no music I can compare it to. Maybe William Onabeo from Ethiopia. But regardless of how a poor island in the middle of the ocean came about the latest in synthesizer tech, the fact is that this new sound helped to unite the people of Capo Verde. These new takes on traditional sound brought the African communities together and empowered them so that in 1975, nine years after the shipwreck washed up apparently, Capo Verde won its fight for sovereignty. These African communities up in the mountains of Capo Verde were finally free from their colonialist Portuguese oppressors, which I think is pretty cool. And the myth about the shipwreck washing up on shore full of simps really adds flavor to the story. Whether or not it's true, it adds a certain je ne sais quoi to the story. And the locals are happy with this story. They don't think it takes away from their independence, their fight for independence. And regardless of if the facts were right in this story, the truth is still there in it, that the music of these communities up in the mountains brought people together and helped fight for independence and this new technology that they added to it somehow really helped free them, I think. And the coolest thing is the music and traditions of Capo Verde are celebrated now, and they bring interest from overseas, and they really add color to the archipelago. And I, I think it's great. It really shows how music can be used as a tool for revolution. And I'm not the only one to have noticed. DJs are now looking to these revolutionary sounds for inspiration in their work. And it's not surprising because at its roots, electronic music was a form of revolution. And I talked about this in my one of my first podcasts, the algebra BT community in Chicago and Detroit that led the house movement in the early days of electronic music. And I've talked about this maybe four or five podcasts ago. Their disenfranchised youth in this Thatcher era in the early 90s in England got together and used electronic music as an outlet for their unhappiness. Electronic music has the power to bring people together and empower them. I'm thinking, maybe it'd be cool to have a DJ 
look at having a remix of traditional Māori songs, if that's okay. If that's not tapu, not. If that's allowed. And it would be cool to see them on the forefront using electronic music, bring them into today's world, make them palatable for today's world. Not that they're palatable, but bring them, I don't know, make them sound like they're from this era, and I don't know if they would give them more relevance. Maybe, maybe not. I couldn't imagine Poye as a electronic song, but it'd be worth a shot. So, there's a artist called DJ Koza, and he's known for remixing songs. And he remixed this beautiful song, and it's just great, so I have to play it. It's a song called Sanba Yopran Pale, and it's a traditional Haitian song, steeped in voodoo trend tradition. The Sambas are the poets and keepers of Haitian history and culture. They pass on their wisdom through song and story. Sanba Yopranpale is an invitation to the Sambas to speak their truth whilst paying respect to the voodoo, loa, or spirits. A celebrated remixer, DJ Kotsa, is known for his eclectic and refreshing musical approach. His take on Sanba Yopranpale is no different. DJ Koza reimagines, reimagines the traditional voodoo song as a summer dance anthem, warping and stretching the original vocals from Lakumazik Samba Zao onto a bed of catchy rhythmic synths and warm enveloping bass. Ten minutes long, the original mix has a nostalgic analog warmth that feels perfect for a Haitian summer day. This is the Paradise Delay podcast. I'm going to leave you here with a song to end off the end of the podcast. I hope you're having a lovely day or night. And be kind to one another. Most importantly, be compassionate to yourself. And we'll see you in a fortnight. Peace.
The podcast you just listened to was a live recording of a radio show, first broadcast on Fresh FM, the top of the South's community access media station, with support from New Zealand On Air. The funding of Access Media makes these podcasts possible. To find similar programs by other community access media stations, go online to accessmedia.nz.